Please turn with me in your Bible back to Acts chapter 6, where we were at the beginning of the service. Now, I told you already, this is the longest sermon that we have written down in the book of Acts. Surprising, right, that it comes from a guy, Stephen, not from Peter, not from John, not from Paul. The longest recorded speech in Acts is Stephen, this man who was just humbly serving uh, widows in the church. So, it may, it may take us a moment today, okay, to finish this sermon. You're going to be going to be hoping it ends, but we're, we're, we'll get there. Lord willing, we will get to the end. But let me, let me set this up, because um, I'm trying to deal with some major themes that run through His sermon, and one of the major themes is the theme of the temple. So, let me just say a word about the, the temple in the Bible. It's a pretty big deal, right? The temple shows up all over the place. What, what is the purpose of the tabernacle, which was a movable temple, right, made of animal skins, and then the permanent place was the temple, a building. What's the point of the temple in the story of the Bible? When the Bible begins, there is no temple and there is no tabernacle, and when the Bible ends, there is no temple and there is no tabernacle. It is better to not have either of those because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were still sinless, the Lord God walked in the garden in the breeze of the evening. The Lord was present right there with His people, and they could, they could commune with Him, and there was no separation between them and God. Adam and Eve's sin and separation begins. Like Isaiah said, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Now there's a cherubim, flaming sword. There's no way in, and they are cut off from the immediate presence of God in the way that they had experienced it. And did you realize thousands of years pass, and there is no tabernacle, and there is no temple, and you get to Exodus, where we were last couple years ago, year and a half, why is it when you read the second half of Exodus, there's about ten chapters devoted to how to build a tent? You, you, you make it through your Bible reading plan, you know, and you get to Exodus, and everything's going great until chapter 21, and then you're like, oh, okay, we got these very intricate laws, and then suddenly there's what kind of fabric you use on the tabernacle, and what kind of poles, and how the gold was made, and what do you do with the showbread, and, what, and you're, you're like, what? Why is this, of all the questions I have for God, why would, why ten chapters on this? Well, the reason is because we're reading it from a very strange perspective. We're not reading it the way the first readers would have read this. God is finally coming back to His people, and let's make the place ready. And so, they spend an enormous amount of time pouring all their gold that they had gotten from the Egyptians and the costly stones into this elaborate tent made perfectly according to the pattern Moses received because what? There's a day coming, it comes in Exodus 40, when they finish and they complete it at Mount Sinai and the blazing glory of God that was up on top of the mountain leaves the mountaintop, comes down off the mountain and fills this tent, and it's so bright and terrifying that even Moses is afraid to enter. He waits. He does not even go in. And then after a period of years, a number of centuries, David asks, and eventually Solomon builds that permanent temple where God could dwell in the midst of His people, but that is later destroyed. And here is where we're heading in the Bible. We're heading to a time when the curtain is torn in two, and we, by the blood of Christ, have immediate access to God by His Spirit, and in eternity in the new heavens and new earth, there is no temple there because 
First of all, it's shaped, the whole new creation is shaped like a holy of holies, a perfect cube. But we are in the immediate presence of God forever, and there is no need for a veil or a wall to be between us and God because the sacrifice has been paid, we've been restored, God dwells with His people forever. So the goal of the Bible is not temple. The goal of the Bible is to get past the temple. The goal of the Bible is to get where there is no temple. There's no need for a temple because the Lord God's glory is there with us. Now, you can understand if someone has misunderstood the role of the temple, they could become very upset at a message like that. And so, Stephen and Jesus are faced with blasphemy charges because they sound like they're not really supporting the eternal state of the temple. Look with me here at the charges that were raised against Stephen again in verse, this is Acts 6, verse 11. It sounds like six charges, it's really just two. Acts uh, 6, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak, number one, blasphemous words against Moses, and number two, against God. And they stirred up the people, etc. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, do you see there are six items that were just mentioned? Moses, God, this holy place, the law, this place, Moses. You speak against those six things. But you see those six things are just two things. To speak against God is to speak against the temple, is to speak against this place. They're considered one thing in their minds. And to speak against Moses is to speak against the Mosaic law, which is to change the customs given by Moses. Do you see? Those two sets of threes are just two things. If you're lost already, I understand. But let me boil that down. Stephen is accused of, of, of blaspheming the temple and the Mosaic law. When you boil it down, that's, that's what he's accused of doing. And so, Stephen has all eyes and ears on him, the face, remember, of an angel. He's not panicking. He has calm, peace over his face, boldness, clarity of thought, boldness of speech. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, and he's off to speak. Now, you heard you heard his speech earlier to just now, right? You, you heard it. Many people have said, I've even read some liberal non-Christian commentators say, Stephen really lost his mind on this speech. He's asked about two issues, and he spends almost the whole time recounting the history of Israel, which everyone already knows and everyone already agrees on. He barely gets to the issues at the very end about the temple and the law, and then he starts accusing them and they kill him. One non-Christian writer about this passage said, Stephen needs basically a lesson on how to do public speaking because he wastes about 90% of his words talking about Abraham and he talks about you know, Joseph in Egypt and he talks about the burning bush. I mean, what, what are you doing, Stephen? You, you, you've been asked two things. Are you against the temple or are you for it? Are you against the law of Moses or are you for it? Answer, and he goes on this long talk about Jewish history. Seems like he's lost his way for most of the speech. Well, I would like to argue Stephen has not lost his mind on this speech. 
I actually think Stephen is doing something brilliant, but it takes a moment before you see perhaps what he's doing. You may have already caught some of what he's doing here. So I'm, I'm going to give you three points to hold this together in our minds, uh, three points to sort of uh, to understand Stephen's speech here. Number one, his themes here are number one, God's temple, number two, God's deliverer, and number three, God's law. God's temple, God's deliverer, and God's law. And in case you've just completely missed, I felt like for years I had just not understood this speech. See if you can see what Stephen is doing here. So, number one, you're blaspheming God because you're speaking against the temple. Well, let's see what he does with the temple theme in these first verses. Verse 2, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Now, just pause there. That may just sound like he's just saying stuff, but do you see the theme of the temple? Look at it. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was where? In Mesopotamia, which is the land of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. Was God present outside of a building? Was God present outside of the promised land? See, pause here. The Jewish people had taken these two great gifts that God had given them, the law and the temple, God's instructions and His presence and the sacrificial system. They had taken these two tremendous gifts from God, and what they were supposed to do with them, they are supposed to do was believe in God and obey His law and rightly administer the temple And what was supposed to happen was God would bless them and the nations of the earth would stream to them and they would see the glory of the king and they would see the glory of the temple and they would see the glory of what God was doing with his people and they would be converted. Like the queen of Sheba coming to see the wisdom of Solomon from far away. They would flock to Jerusalem. They would be overwhelmed by the truth and they would go into the temple to the court of the Gentiles and they would pray to the God of Israel and they would come to know him. If you don't believe that, 1 Kings 8 when Solomon is first dedicating the temple, the solid building, he says, he prays for foreigners to come from the nations and see God's glory and that God would answer the prayers of foreigners as they come to this temple and that they would come to know God. That was the point. And when Jesus shows up in the temple when he, in His ministry, His first year of ministry, John 2, He goes into the temple and what does He see? The court of the Gentiles the place where those foreigners come to pray and to meet the true God, was full of what? Tables of money changers, oxen, doves, sheep, all these animals. And what are they doing? They've filled the place where the Gentiles were to come pray with a place to make money. And Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, and you've made it a den of thieves. And Jesus gets the whip out and begins to overturn tables. He's saying, guys, you haven't made a mistake. You've missed the point of the entire temple. The temple was supposed to be a shining light on a hill, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And the city is Jerusalem, and the nations are to stream to you and meet the living God and pray to Him here in the temple, and they're supposed to come to know Him, and instead you become greedy, and you've pushed out the Gentiles from their place, and you're trying to make a buck doing it. This is a massive misunderstanding and misuse of the temple. 
Let's take the law of Moses. They had taken all these things like circumcision and the many days of celebration, and what have they done? They turned them into bragging, boasting items to worship themselves, right? So, they go around thinking they're superior to others because they have these badges and these laws, and they keep them so scrupulously, this makes me better than others. Instead, the point was that they would be holy as God is holy and that the nations would see. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let them all know and let them come and see the one true God. But instead, by and large, Israel, primarily most of them, not all, many, took the law of God and turned it into a self-centered pursuit of self-glorification and self-righteousness, missing its purpose in redemptive history. So, Stephen says, guys, we all love the Old Testament. You guys think that you've got God in your backyard. He's in the temple. It's like your lucky charm, right? Remember in Jeremiah, they would say things like this, the rebellious people. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They'd say it three times, and they say, no one can touch us. We've got God living here. And then they would talk about the Ark of the Covenant in a similar kind of way. Sometimes when they go into battle in 1 Samuel, they bring the ark with them when they're rebelling in battle just because they know they can't lose because they got God with them. And then God goes, well, I'm going to let you lose, and I'm going to let the Philistines steal the ark. Don't treat these things like they're magical incantations, okay? I am here in, in a special way, but do not treat them as, an, as a way of self-glorification. And so Stephen says, hey, God is not bound to your building that you built. He's not. God met with our father Abraham in the land of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. God is not restricted to a building. He can be found and met anywhere on the earth. Look with me at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But what? God was with him in Egypt? Now, listen to how often Egypt shows up here. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could, not, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, J- Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. Now, do you see what Stephen's doing? God was present with Joseph where? In Egypt. So, if you thought Babylon was bad, Egypt's not much better. God is not bound to a building in Jerusalem. God was present with Joseph in Egypt, and He was present with Abraham in Chaldea, in Babylon. And God worked mightily through Joseph down in Egypt. He doesn't need your building to be present with His people. But uh, one of the biggest charges that that is faced here is going to have to do with um, Moses. But before I get to Moses, look down at verse 44. Continuing the theme of the temple here, verse 44, "'Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness.'" Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he says, as the prophet says, he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen says, listen, even Isaiah the prophet says, no building can contain the Lord. Heaven is His throne room. He rests His feet on earth. Don't think that you have Him under your control in the temple. Okay, point number two, God's deliverer. Now, look at what Stephen is doing here with the theme of the deliverer, verse 9. And the patriarchs, that is the twelve brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now, here, Stephen is zeroing in on a theme that repeats in the Old Testament. It's a theme that his listeners don't want to think about. Do you see the theme? Just starting. Do the people of Israel have a tendency to reject God's chosen deliverer? Is that a theme that you see in the Old Testament? Did God choose Joseph? Yeah, did God give Joseph dreams? Say, your brothers are going to bow down to me, your, your father and mother, the sun and the moon, they, they will also bow down at my feet. He has multiple dreams of that. When he tells his brothers, they are filled with jealousy. They can't stand him. They hate him. They're going to kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. So, Stephen says, okay, look, even our first patriarch fathers, like our 12 tribes are named after these guys, Judah and Reuben and on, they reject God's chosen one. They reject him and they try to kill him. Okay, look at verse 13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. So you see here, Joseph reveals himself and actually saves his brothers despite their rejecting him. Let's see that theme again, verse 35, the chosen deliverer. This Moses, whom they, what? rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Now, do you see what Stephen is doing here? Stephen says, okay, let's look back at Old Testament history. Did God choose Moses? Yeah. Baby in the basket, he, he guided Pharaoh's uh, daughter to pick him up and feel compassion and to raise him in her own home. And at 40 years old, Moses, who'd been educated in Egypt, was incredibly, unimaginably wealthy, he has compassion for his own people, the Jewish people who are being beaten and whipped and abused, and he goes out to visit them. This is a massive turning point in his life. And when he goes and visits them, he sees the Egyptian beating the, the Jewish man, and he goes and avenges, and he strikes the Egyptian down and kills him and tries to bury him. 
Now, when we went through Exodus, we, we said we don't think that was the right thing to do. I think Moses was trying to save in his own strength, but still, you see the theme of rejection by Israel right here. The next day, Moses sees two Israelites fighting. He says, hey guys, you got to stop this. This is not good. And they say, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who picked you to be our redeemer? And the answer is, God did. God did. And so, what do they do? They cast him aside. They despise Moses, and he has to run away, scared they're going to tell on him, and that Pharaoh's going to find out that he killed an Egyptian, and that he himself will be killed for what he did. So, just like Joseph, Israel rejects God's chosen man and Joseph, and they reject Moses. Do they reject Joseph the second time when he reveals himself? No. Right? They're scared, but he says, I'm here to save you. And Moses, when he returns and shows the signs and wonders, they believe, they trust him, and they follow him out through the Red Sea and in the midst of the Passover lamb. Now, if you may, be, you may wonder right here, they didn't ask him about that. Why is he talking about that? And I would like to suggest that Stephen is not just answering their question, he's adding something to what they were asking. He's adding this theme. He's saying, guys, if you trace our history, virtually every time God chooses someone and raises them up, our people as a majority reject that person and often kill like the prophets, kill them. Jeremiah was hated in his day and on and on, right? So, he says, listen, I want to develop another pattern here. Just as Joseph was rejected, Moses was rejected, the prophets were rejected, which of the prophets did they not kill, he will say. Just as that happened, I want you to know that that theme has continued right up until the present day, and that God has sent another Moses figure, another one like Joseph, and he was hated and rejected and despised, and we'll come back to that theme momentarily. Okay, now point number three, God's law. So, we talked a little bit about God's temple. Number two was God's deliverer, Joseph, Moses, later Jesus. And number three, God's law. Does Stephen blaspheme the law of Moses? And look with me at verse 38. Stephen actually begins to turn the tables on them on this accusation. Verse 38, speaking of Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Does that sound like a guy who hates the law of Moses? He calls them living oracles from God. That sounds like a man who has respect for the law of Moses, right? Which Stephen does. And then he says, look what they did to the living oracles. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, that's Moses' brother, make for us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in, important phrase, the works of their hands. Look at verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses built by man. And then look at verse 51. Here's how Stephen wraps up his message, and this is just astonishing, these words. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, I, I will say, I don't think we should always talk to people we disagree with like that. But I will say, American evangelicalism would say you should never talk like that. And that Stephen here is acting in an unchristlike way, which is kind of funny since he's full of the Spirit of Christ when he says these things. This is Christ-like speech. It sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill, but you, you, you neglect the weightier matters of the law, righteousness and truth and justice, etc., etc. Woe to you, blind guides. You travel the entire world to make one convert, and you make them twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are, you hypocrites. People would say, that's very unchristlike. That is Christ. That's Christ talking. That is Christ-like, okay? So, there are times and places, not all the time, not every place, okay? We can get carried away, perhaps, but there is a time and a place for very strong and direct speech, especially with those of the religious community who are particularly self-righteous, swollen with conceit, and can't see anything about the truth of their sinfulness and their need for Jesus. There comes a time where someone is so blind to their sin and so self-righteous, where the only thing that has a chance of ripping the calluses off the eyes is very direct speech. In Acts 2, Peter says, you crucified the Messiah, and they are cut to the heart, and they say, what must we do to be saved? They repent. Here, they do not repent. Although they are pierced in the heart, they are enraged, and they grind their teeth, and they kick Stephen out, and they stone him to death. What is Stephen doing here that is so inflammatory? Look, look, at, look at it again, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Okay, imagine you got an animal, like some kind of mule or something, and the animal's head is just in one direction, and you can't turn the animal any way you want. You want to turn it left, its neck is stiff. You want to turn it right, its neck is stiff. It will not turn to the right or to the left. It goes where it wants to go. And he says here, you will not humble yourself before God's law and turn the way God wants you to turn. You won't repent. Then, maybe even more intense, he says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. <laughs> Do you know who he's talking to? These are the people who boast in their circumcision and their identity with the, with the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision. They are physically circumcised. And Stephen says, physical circumcision means nothing. In fact, less than nothing if your heart is a Gentile uncircumcised heart and your ears are closed like a pagan to the gospel. You guys are really Gentiles. Think about who he's talking to. Then he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Kevin DeYoung made me laugh he said, on this verse. He said, in marriage counseling, you're always told never use the word always. You always do something wrong. You know, you never, that's not a good idea. Don't say, you always do this or that. But Stephen doesn't take that advice. He says, no, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Wow. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of your prophet, which of your, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of… Now, he could have said anything right here. He could have said Jesus. He could have said the Nazarene. He could have said the Messiah, the Christ. He could have said God's Son. 
He could have said the Son of Man. He'll call Him that later in this. Instead, what does He call Him? The Righteous One. So, God's law. Here's the point. Stephen is saying, listen to the crowd. You think I'm blaspheming God's law? I believe those are the living oracles of God that were spoken on Mount Sinai. I believe the law is holy, righteous, and good, like Paul says in Romans 7. It's, it is good. The law of God is good. But I will tell you something. You guys have misunderstood the law. You guys have turned the law into a self-achievement platform where you earn your way up to God and you earn His blessing. You've missed the fact that the ultimate point of the law was to show you that you can't keep it that you actually in your own flesh will never succeed in keeping it, and that your heart is corrupt to its core, and that you need a Savior. And the Savior that you need perfectly keeps the law. In fact, this is the irony. The only human being in the history of mankind who is actually righteous under the Mosaic law, you murdered a few months ago. So, you're talking about me blaspheming the law of Moses? I esteem the law of Moses. I believe it was holy, right, and good. I believe it was God's living oracles, but I will tell you something. I have failed to keep it, Stephen would have said. That's why I need a Savior, Jesus, and you have failed to keep it. Your fathers killed those who preached it, and I'll tell you something else. The only man who ever lived it, the righteous one. Why call Jesus that there? The righteous one. He kept the law. The righteous one you murdered you killed, you had Him crucified, and His blood is now resting on your hands in this moment. You have murdered the only one who kept the law of Moses. Now, do you see how the tables have radically started to turn? I'm not blaspheming the law of God. You killed the only one who's kept the law of God. You hate the embodiment of God's perfect holiness. You hated it, and you murdered the one who kept it. So, let me just uh, tick through a couple of things here. Look, one, one, more, one more thought. Look at uh, verse 54 through 56. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you look back at verse 2, you see there, Abraham met the God of glory in Mesopotamia, right? And the glory of God was in the temple. And now what does Stephen see? Stephen looks up into heaven and he sees God's temple presence, right? The glory of God, not in the building down the street. He sees the glory of God up in heaven his true throne room, right? The heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. He looks up in heaven, he sees the glory of God, and who is at God's right hand? The Jesus that they crucified. So, if you want God's presence that was in the temple, today you don't go to a building, you go to the Lord Jesus by His Spirit, and His Spirit fills you, and you are God's, God's presence is with you, and we together are God's temple made of living stones, and now the temple is associated with Jesus. What else about the temple? The animal sacrifice is unnecessary because all the animals that were slain from the foundation of the world were screaming that they were insufficient and that we needed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once and for all. For the blood of bulls and goats never actually atoned for sin. They were pointing to Jesus, the true sacrifice, and now Jesus has been slain. Now, isn't this ironic? See, Joseph 
was betrayed sinfully by his brothers, and it was through their betrayal, ironically, that their salvation came about because their betrayal got them to Egypt, which got them saved in a famine. Isn't the same thing happening here? They crucified the righteous one, which was absolutely wicked, and yet God through that is working the very means of their salvation. If they will turn from sin and trust in Jesus, even despite the fact that they had Him murdered, they can still be saved by the blood of the Lamb, even right here and now. You say, I don't believe that. Well, look, look at verse 58. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Can God save even amongst this group? God can save even among that group who had rejected the Lord Jesus. So I want to walk through four kind of quick points of application here. So number one, if you want to meet the presence of the living God, there is one way and that is through the Lord Jesus Himself. We don't go to a building, we go to a person, the person of Jesus. Number two, if you want a sacrifice to end all sacrifices and to finally get rid of the guilt in your conscience, that's what Hebrews said, that the blood of animals could not cleanse the conscience, but Jesus can cleanse your conscience. So, let's be real here. You have done things that are wrong, and you know about them, and I don't, perhaps. There are things you know you have done wrong this month, this year, deliberate sin in your life. You know this. And that gets into your conscience, and it bothers you like a stone in your shoe. It just bothers you. And I'm here to tell you that there is good news. If we will own up to our sin, and we will confess it, and we won't hide it, and we will let it out in the open, and we will tell others, and we will tell it to the Lord Himself, and we will name it and repent of it, and we will trust ourselves to Jesus, He will cleanse our conscience from the darkest of evil in your past. You cannot out-sin God's grace, right? Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, one Puritan said. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So, if you feel guilt right now for sin in your life and heart, and you don't know what to do with it or where to turn, and you think, if if this was fully known, I would be so shamed. Listen, God will cleanse you, forgive you, and He will grant you a clean conscience. Number three, if you want the better mediator than Moses go to the Lord Jesus. I mean, think about Moses. He was chosen by God. He was born when other babies his age were being killed, just like Jesus in His birth in Bethlehem. He was raised up to do signs and wonders, the same words to use Jesus did, signs and wonders. He led the people out through the blood of the Lamb. They crossed over the waters, and they're headed towards the land flowing with milk and honey. This is what Moses is typifying as Jesus. He is the true deliverer, and He is the true mediator between God and man. Remember Moses on the mountain? They worshiped the golden calf, and God says, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy this people, and I'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes before the Lord. Moses says, Lord, no. Your name and glory are attached to these people. If you're going to blot them out, blot me out of the book of life. And the Lord relents, and the Lord Uh, listens to Moses' prayer, and the Lord grants grace. How much more so is is Jesus, 
There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us uh, to be received by faith. Jesus, because He is God, can put one hand on His Father's shoulder, and because He's a human being, can put His other hand on your shoulder, and He can make right, and He can reconcile an infinitely holy God and a hopelessly sinful person through His work on the cross. And number four, if you want perfect righteousness in fulfillment of the law of God, go to Jesus, the righteous one. Uh, turn with me just for a moment here to your right, to the book of Romans, chapter, the end of chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, towards the end. And look at this battle here between the more typically Jewish mindset in the more typically Gentile mindset. This is Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? By the way, this is that same Saul who was just there to help kill Stephen. This is that same Saul converted and writing this passage. Amazing. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith? But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on what? Works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's the gospel of Jesus. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So listen, not only is the Lord Jesus our sacrifice of atonement, our propitiation the one who bears God's judgment and satisfies God's wrath in the place of sinners, not only is He that, and that is gloriously good news, He is also the provider of our righteousness, our right standing before a holy God. We are not left without righteous garments. We are clothed in the righteousness of another, the Lord Jesus, and it is all by faith in what He has done. So our sin is borne by Him on the cross, and His righteousness is imputed or credited to our account so that we stand not only not condemned, but we stand righteous before God. So Stephen is not against the temple. He's saying the temple was always pointing to Jesus, His presence, His Spirit. Number two, Stephen was not blaspheming the sacrificial system. Jesus is the last sacrifice. He was not blaspheming Moses because Moses said, a deliverer like me will come from your brothers, and that was Jesus. And finally, he was not blaspheming the law of Moses because the righteous one who fulfilled the law is the Lord Jesus, and he is urging everyone to put their faith in the one that the entire law and the prophets was written to point to. Before I pray, let me just ask you, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, I want you to know that 
in a very short time, you and I will stand before the eternal God, and you and I will give an account for our life, and I want you to know that there is a way to be right with that God, and right now, if you have not trusted Jesus, within the sound of my voice, if you have not trusted Jesus, I would ask you right now in this moment to turn from sin, perhaps even self-righteousness, that I'm a good person, to throw that away and to entrust yourself fully to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for choosing the Deliverer, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank You that when You died, You made a way for the curtain in the temple to be torn, representing the openness of access that we have through You to Your Father's presence. Holy Spirit, I, I would ask that even right now you would be at work in our hearts as we are preparing to sing, that you would humble us, all of us, that you would show us how much we need the Lord Jesus, and that you would help us to entrust our entire life to you. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds as we sing this now. In Jesus' name, amen.